0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. How many of you remember being in elementary school and what happened when the teacher left the room? It was about 20, 25 seconds, was it, until everybody went into complete chaos as soon as the teacher was gone? Or maybe for you, you remember what happened in high school where uh, a teacher completely forgot to show up to a class. and It didn't take long for people to start goofing off as soon as the teacher was gone. As we turn to the book of Philippians this morning, what we find is that Paul has been away from the church of Philippi for a while. And he's concerned that the people in Philippi are starting to goof off a little bit. They're not behaving the way they should when he is gone. And Paul's concerned that the Philippians, while they may believe the gospel, now that he's gone, they are not actually living out the gospel. He's concerned there's not a good connection between the Christian faith and the Christian life. And that's what he's going to be talking about this morning. Incidentally, this is something that is still a problem for us today, isn't it? That There's always a disconnect, it seems to be, between what we believe in our heart and what we live in our life, and this is what we're going to see today. Before we dive into the text, let me just review what we've learned so far from the Philippians. We know that Paul has been talking about himself for a while and how he is filled with joy, that joy has come from the fact that the gospel is making progress, even though he's in jail. He's been chained to Roman guards, and those Roman guards have been coming to Christ as he's been telling them about Christ. So he's filled with joy. Last week, we saw Paul talked about the outcome of his trial. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or if he was going to be set free. But either way, he said he's still filled with joy. If he was set free, it would give him the opportunity to tell more people about Christ. But if he was executed, he would go home directly to be with Christ, because death is actually better than life for the Christian. This morning, as we go back into the book of Philippians, we find that this autobiographical tone where Paul has been talking about himself comes to an end. From here on out, for most of the rest of the book, Paul will be talking specifically to the Philippians and the concerns that he has for their life. And the concern he has is primarily not that they have something wrong in their Christian belief, but it's that they're not living out the, the Christian life. There's going to be two big areas that he's going to talk about. Uh, we're going to see today and in the weeks ahead. He's going to be talking about his concerns about division inside of the church and persecution and how they're handling it when it comes from outside of the church. So let's go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. I'll read verses 27 through 30, and that'll be our text, and then we'll dive into studying it this morning. Beginning in verse 27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That ends the reading of God's word. So we begin on the top, Paul writes this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And these words are a good summary for what follows. He says, your manner of life, the way you live, let it be worthy of the fact that you are Christians holding out the gospel. What you're going to find is in these verses, there's actually a number of very important and very graphic Greek words that Paul is using. Unfortunately, the English cannot really convey what is going on in the Greek. So if it's okay with you, this morning what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be stopping on some of these keywords in our study, taking a few moments and lifting the hood, as it were, and looking under the English text to the Greek word itself and explaining to you what's actually going on here. I think you'll find a great deal of uh, vividness that'll come out from that, and you'll appreciate it. The first important Greek word I would like to look at is right here on the top. It's the word only. Uh, the ESV has used a single word to translate the, the Greek word behind it. But some of you who have translations that are paraphrases uh, find that there's actually a couple words used to translate this initial word. Paraphrases often just say the, the phrase or the words, just one thing. The idea, if you were to translate this word with a single word, it would be the word only, but if you're translating the idea of the Greek, it's just one thing. Paul is saying here, there is just essentially one thing I want to talk to you about in this letter. There is one big issue. Let me tell you what the bottom line is. You have to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can't just say that you are Christians. It matters that you live a life worthy of being a Christian. That's the bottom line, Paul says. That's the one thing that really matters. And isn't that true today? Isn't that where we struggle most? We may know the Christian faith in our head, but we still struggle to live the Christian faith in our life? This is especially difficult, I know, for many young adults because it's so much peer pressure to fit in with your friends and to hang out with your friends. And they go watch an R-rated movie and you say, well, I'll go along and watch with you, even though that doesn't fit with the Christian life. Your friends pop out some weed and you say, well, I'll, I'll smoke it with you even though that doesn't fit with the Christian life. And this struggle of trying to fit in with the culture and fit in with the Christian life of Jesus, this is a real issue. And that's what Paul is going to be talking about this morning. The next really vivid Greek word that comes out is right after this. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy. Now to explain what is going on here. I need to give you a little bit of background Remember when we began this study uh, in Acts chapter 16, we looked at the beginning of the church of Philippi and the location of the church, that even though Philippi is 800 miles away from the city of Rome, they were considered a Roman colony. The people were considered citizens of Rome. And that was a great and high privilege. They also housed the Roman soldiers that were to keep the peace in that area. Now, these Philippians prided themselves on their Roman citizenship. They went out of their way, actually, to make the city look like Rome. Some of their buildings were replicas of buildings that were in Rome. The master plan for the layout of the city was considered to be identical to the layout of the city of Rome. Even the clothing that people wore when you were in the city was Roman clothing that you would only usually see in Rome itself. So people were consumed with this uh, ultra-patriotic attitude that they would live a life worthy of being a Roman citizen. So they made Philippi into a mini version of Rome. Now this word that is here, manner of life, It literally means live as a worthy citizen. And so Paul is saying this. You are often preoccupied with making sure you're living a life that is worthy of being a citizen of Rome with Nero as your ruler. That's what you've been consumed with. But he says, you should be preoccupying yourself with living a life that is worthy of the citizenship of the gospel with Jesus Christ as your ruler. So Paul is taking this um, idea of their passion to be Roman citizens. And he's saying, now you want to live like a Roman citizen, live as a Christian citizen. Paul will bring this same idea up a little bit later on in the book where he says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is that it's more important than being patriotic and living like a Roman, is being a Christian and living like Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. Now, will there be conflicts between loyalty to Roman citizenship and loyalty to their heavenly citizenship? Oh, yes. There is going to be plenty of conflicts that will come up. And Paul's overarching point is when those citizenships come into conflict, being a citizen of heaven with Jesus as your ruler is the one that must always win out. Now, what Paul does from this point forward is he starts to spell out for the Philippians, what does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven? What does it look like to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel? So let's go ahead and dive into that. How do we live as citizens of God's kingdom? The first point he makes is citizens of the kingdom stand in unity like soldiers, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit. Here is another really vivid Greek word that we talked about. This idea of standing firm. It's the Greek word steko was originally used to describe how Roman soldiers were to stand firm and hold the line during battle and not retreat or not give in. And understand how important this word would have been to the citizens of Philippi. Remember, they housed the Roman soldiers of the region. So they knew, those Roman soldiers, the importance of standing firm and of holding the line. And this becomes even more important and is when we understand Roman military tactics. You can see that what the Roman soldiers would do is they would, they would lock shields together in the front and they would lock shields together on the top and when they would, they would be under attack, they were to hold that line and not break formation. Because if they broke formation, what that meant is the whole line was vulnerable. Not just that they were vulnerable. They needed to stand firm as a unit if they were going to survive. And this plays into the next key thing that Paul says. As citizens of God's kingdom, we stand firm and hold the line against Satan but we, and the world, but we hold the line in unity together. What Paul is doing here is he is making a plea for unity in the church. Because just as breaking up the unity of a Roman line led to the destruction of the line and the destruction of the soldiers, the breaking up of the unity in the church will lead to our destruction as well. The church must focus on the enemy And the church must not focus on fighting and disagreeing with one another. Because when the church focuses on fighting each other, they will quickly be destroyed. Think about that. And what would it be like for Roman soldiers that are united together, holding shields against the enemy, standing firm, but they started fighting against each other under those shields. Instantly, their strength would be gone. That is the picture that Paul is trying to convey to the Philippians. That when Christians waste their time in sideways energy, fighting against each other, the strength of the church against the assaults of Satan and the world is broken and the strength of the church is destroyed. Interestingly, as we start to look more in depth in the church of Philippi, what do we find? That this church had a fair amount of infighting in it. People disagreeing with one another. For instance, Philippians chapter two, verse, or chapter four, verses two through three. Paul says, "I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These ladies are having a fight with each other." Now, what were they fighting about? We don't know. But what we do know is whatever they were fighting about was not theologically significant or important. Because if it was, Paul would have weighed in on the issue and said which one was right on the issue. They were disagreeing over secondary issues. And the division between them was not just between them, but it was spreading throughout the whole church And as a result, that church could not stand firm against the enemy. And the division between them was destroying them. So what Paul says, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you know that you cannot fight one another. You stand firm against the enemy. Paul talks about this again, the idea of unity and the importance of it. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves so Paul is saying put others needs in front of your needs stop fighting with one another we see this happens with other churches as well Paul talks about this same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter one. He says, "I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment." Paul talked about the same thing with the Ephesian church. He says, "Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit." in the bond of peace. And just as Roman soldiers could not stand firm and hold the line when there was fighting between them, Christian soldiers cannot stand firm against the assault of Satan and the world when there is fighting between them. Folks, if you look across the history of the church... Most churches are not destroyed by persecution from the outside. They're destroyed by division from the inside. And Paul says that is not appropriate for citizens of God's kingdom. Now, let me ask a couple other questions with this. What causes disunity in the church? A couple things here. First of all, it's selfishness many times. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Selfish ambition, trying to put yourself first, that causes disunity. Conceit, which is pride, thinking of yourself as better than others in the church, that causes division. But when you're in a group of people that are filled with humility, that are constantly trying to think of the needs of others as far more important than their own needs, you find very little division and disunity. Selfishness causes disunity. Number two, undervaluing unity is what also causes disunity. It says in Psalm 133, 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I think in our culture, we just undervalue the importance of unity, especially in Christ's body. I've been pastoring for a number of years now, and I know how it goes. Sometimes people get upset with things that happen in the church. It's not exactly the way they would do it, so their action is, well, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. And they think about that in regard to their own life, but they don't think about that how it breaks the unity they have with one another's life. That's not the way a Christian should live. That's not what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Destroying the unity between God's people often destroys the effectiveness of God's people. Folks, we need one another to lock arms with one another, to stand firm with one another, and to be of one spirit with one another if we are going to withstand the assaults of Satan and this world. We can't do it alone. That's why we need unity between us. The next point Paul makes is this. Citizens of the kingdom work together like athletes on a team striving for a goal. Paul says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here we have another vivid word picture. It's the idea of athletics, striving side by side. The Greek word here is synathleo. You can hear the word athleo, or where we get our English word athletics from it. It's picturing a team working together, sweating together, to, to accomplish the goal, to get the prize. Historians tell us that most likely this had to do with actually a kind of wrestling that was popular in that day. For us, wrestling is an individual sport. They actually had wrestling that was more of a team sport back then, probably more similar to US, UFC team sport fighting. Most of us aren't familiar with that. So I think the best way to translate it into our culture would be simply football. The football team is people all working together, striving together to play their part. And the better the team has unity, the better they do at actually winning. The football team, incidentally, has different roles to play. Some people are on offense. Some people are on defense. Some people are on special teams. But it's when they all work together they can get the touchdown together. And the application is this. For the gospel to make progress in our community and for the gospel to make progress in the world, it's not about us being a bunch of individual Christians. It's about us working together as a team of Christians, putting our efforts together to strive for the same goal of reaching our community with Jesus. Now, let me give a couple applications I've seen along the way at this point with regard to these word pictures of a soldier standing firm as one spirit locked together or of athletes striving to work together. What can we learn? Number one, the Christian faith is a team faith, not exclusively an individual faith we need one another today you often hear about people say being a Christian is me my Bible and Jesus but think about what Paul said to stand firm against the assaults of Satan we need each other think about what Paul has said to make progress we have to strive together We have to work together so the gospel can be heard in our community. It's not just about us individually. It's about us as a team. I like to think of it this way. Nobody can play football by themselves, can they? To play football, you need a team. For the gospel to make progress in our community, it's very difficult to happen if it's all about just us by ourselves. We need to be together on the church as a team. Another thing I want to point out is this. Unity in the church is of greater value than my preferences in the church. We've seen that. Just so you know, no church is ever going to be just the way we want it. It just doesn't happen that way. Crosswinds isn't just the way I want it. And I'm sure it's not just the way that you want it either. But unity in the church is far more important than getting my preferences or my way in the church. That's what Paul says. Unity trumps preferences. Another third observation is this. Unity can't be maintained, by the way, without a goal. It really can't. A church that just stands around together will not have unity together. The only way for there to be unity is for there to be an objective, for there to be a common goal. And when there's an objective that people are working towards, what you find is a lot of the internal strife and fighting often goes away. When I first got into ministry, uh, there was another pastor in our community, and he told me the secret, he said, of, of church success. He said, it's always have a building program. Because when you have a building program, people have something to focus on. And therefore, there's less internal fighting between them. Now, I appreciate what he said, but I may not exactly agree agree with what he mentioned. Uh, The church is not about always having a building program. The church is always about living the gospel and sharing the gospel in our community and around the world. That is our goal the progress of the gospel. And when we're focused on that as a church, a lot of the disunity and infighting goes away. Next major point. Paul says, Citizens of the kingdom should not be frightened like a horse when facing opposition. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. And here again, we have another unique Greek word. It's the Greek word for frightened. It literally means, don't be startled like a horse. Now, I haven't been around too many horses, but I do know that it's oftentimes, horses can become skittish. It doesn't take more than an unexpected sound or a big snap or a bang, and all of a sudden, they can rear up on their hind legs or they can run away. And Paul here is talking about the opposition, the persecution that the Philippians are experiencing. He says when you are facing opposition for your Christian life, and opposition for sharing your gospel in the comu- the gospel in the community, don't panic and be like a horse and run away in fear. Remember that God is in charge. Nothing can happen to you but what God allows. And if God allows us to suffer for our faith, he has a good reason for it. In fact, God often takes our suffering for sharing the gospel and uses it to make progress for the gospel. Haven't we seen that with Paul and in Philippi? Paul and Silas shared about the gospel in Philippi. They suffered for it. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into the Philippian prison. They were put in stocks. Sounds like a good time to panic. Freak out like a horse. Oh no, things are falling apart. Not what happened. Paul and Silas were actually singing and praying during the night. And God said an earthquake that threw open all the prison doors. And as a result, the Philippian jailer himself became a Christian and one of the first members of the church in Philippi. So God used the very opposition they faced for the gospel to enable progress of the gospel. That's not just true for Paul and Philippi. It's also true for you and me as well. When we share the gospel in our community, expect that there'll be some people who will mock us, who will laugh at us, who will unfriend us on Facebook. But God will use that, those insults and those difficulties and persecution to help the gospel make progress. Folks, I want you to understand that when the gospel is making progress, expect there to be Opposition. Oftentimes, we bought into this fallacy that a good ministry is a ministry that has no opposition from the world, and that's just not true. Let me show you what this comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If ministry is expect, effective, just we should expect opposition for effective ministry. I like the way Paul writes this. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me. Sounds really good. And then he says in the same breath, Yet many oppose me. Ministry is very effective for Paul, but effective ministry also had opposition to Paul. Effective ministry also has people that are in conflict against it this is maybe new for some of you, but you need to understand whenever we speak the gospel, there is a spiritual battle going on. Supernatural things are taking place when we start to speak about Jesus to people who haven't heard him and tell them about God's love for them. Some people, when they hear about Jesus, will be drawn to him supernaturally as God softens their hearts. Other people, when they hear about Jesus, will be strongly repulsed against Jesus. And they will mock you, they will insult you, they will laugh at you as you talk about Jesus. Very few times is there a middle-of-the-road reaction. It's either you're drawn to Christ or you're repulsed from Christ because a spiritual battle is taking place. Look how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death. He ever smelled the dead body. You know how repulsive that is to some people when we share the gospel. The gospel news is as repulsive as the smell of a dead body. But to other people, he says, to other the fragrance is from life to life who is sufficient for these things. Other people, when we share the gospel, find it life-giving and reviving. You have the two different reactions. So we should expect opposition when we share the gospel. And we should also expect some people to be drawn to the gospel because a spiritual battle is taking place. The next point is this. Citizens of the kingdom that are united for the gospel give a two-way sign to the world. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, he says, but of your salvation and that from God. First thing I'd like to observe is, by the way, Paul is not very politically correct in this. According to Paul, everybody is not going to heaven. Some people are going to be destroyed in the lake of fire. Other people are going to be saved. And the response has to do with how you respond to Jesus Christ. And Paul says this opposition that you are facing is a two-way sign. In other words, the option you're facing is a sign to those who are lost of their destruction. They will be destroyed because they are opposing Jesus and his word. But to us, it's a sign of our salvation. The idea is that when Christians talk about Jesus, and they end up suffering for Jesus, and they continue to follow Jesus, that is a sign to us of the authenticity of our relationship with God. Because you know what happens when there's fake Christians? When all of a sudden they start... uh, having to suffer and Christians suffer for the faith. All of the fake Christians scatter from the faith. The last major point is this. Citizens of the kingdom are sometimes privileged to not just believe in Christ, but to suffer for the gospel-like Christ. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Go ahead and put that graphic up, Jeremy. The idea of granted the privilege of suffering. The word granted here is the Greek word for grace. God had graciously privileged these Philippian Christians to believe in Jesus and Paul reframes it You also have to think about this way, guys. God has also graciously granted you the privilege of suffering for Jesus. Faith is a gracious gift from God. Suffering because you share the gospel is also a gracious gift from God. Now, most of us don't think of it that way. This allows me to talk about a topic that is oftentimes not discussed in church, but I think it's something we should discuss in church, which is that it is a gracious privilege to suffer suffer for sharing the gospel. Now, what kind of suffering are we talking about here? We're not talking about Jesus' suffering for sin on the cross. Jesus has suffered for all of our sin on the cross, our Debt to sin has been paid in full by Jesus. This is talking about a different kind of suffering. This is saying that whenever the gospel is proclaimed in this world by Jesus or his people, since the world is opposed to God, the gospel will be, those who share the gospel will suffer for God. Whenever Jesus or his people proclaim the gospel, since the world is opposed to it, we should expect there to be suffering when it is shared. Jesus, when he shared the gospel on earth, didn't he uh, face suffering from the Jewish leaders who wanted to persecute him? Paul, when he shared the gospel, didn't he suffer because he shared the gospel? Five times beaten with whips, three times beaten with rods, once stoned. Why? Why is this taking place? Simply because he was telling people about Jesus. And folks, we should expect that if we share the gospel effectively and boldly, just like Jesus suffered for sharing it and Paul suffered for sharing it, it should not surprise us when we suffer for sharing the gospel as well. Chances are we won't be beaten with whips. Chances are we won't be stoned. For us, it's much more mild suffering as those who are opposed to Christ or unfriend us on Facebook. They will drop us from their friend group they, they may laugh at us or mock at us or ask questions of us trying to show how silly our faith is in front of our friends. That's the kind of suffering we may faith face. But don't be startled like a horse by that. Just expect it. It's a normal way the gospel goes forth. Some people are drawn to it. Other people are repulsed by it. By the way, this helps make sense of a number of other verses in Scripture. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why is that? Because people will find godliness in the sharing of the gospel repulsive, and you'll be persecuted. Or Acts 5.41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The apostles are saying, we must have done a really good job of talking about the gospel because it drew enough opposition that just as Jesus suffered for sharing the gospel, we are also sharing the gospel. What an incredible privilege. And what I want to challenge us with is that many of us this morning do not have this in our theological grid. We have this idea that we tell our friends, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Jesus and your life will get better and things will go well. And they come to Jesus and they're born again and then they go to tell their other friends about Jesus and some people are drawn to Jesus but other people are repulsed by Jesus. And they begin to suffer. They say, well, nobody told this to me. Folks, that's the way it goes. A spiritual battle takes place when ever we speak the gospel in a world that is completely against it expect some will suffer for Jesus and some will be drawn to Jesus but God has a good plan and his good plan is that he will use the suffering that we face Because we share the gospel for good things in our life. That's why it's a privilege to suffer for the gospel. I put down here a few ways that God uses the suffering we face because we share the gospel in a good way. Number one, suffering for the gospel gives us assurance we belong to Jesus. Paul has just covered that in verse 28. When you suffer in the face of sharing the gospel, it's confidence that you actually know God and have experienced the gospel. Suffering for the gospel brings us closer to Jesus. He covers that in chapter 3, verse 10. When we suffer, it brings us more intimacy for Jesus when we suffer for talking about his name. Suffering for the gospel perfects our usefulness for Christ. James chapter 1 talks about how God uses trials and sufferings to mature our character and to make us more like Jesus. And number 4, suffering for the gospel is a privilege because it leads to eternal rewards. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I just want to challenge us that we must rethink what to expect when we share the gospel. Expect some people will be drawn to it. Other people will be repulsed by it and will face opposition for it don't be startled and frightened by that opposition like a horse that runs away expect God will use that very opposition as part of the ways that he will spread the gospel in this world just like he did for Paul and Silas and Philippi not only that but he'll use that opposition we face for sharing the gospel in a good way in our life giving us a closer experience of him giving us more effective ministry for him and giving us greater spiritual maturity for him. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this, Paul says, don't just have the Christian faith, but live as citizens worthy of heaven. Live the Christian life. And he gave us a number of ways that that looks like. How do we live as worthy citizens of the gospel? Number one, We stand firm against the in unity we stand firm as between one another as one spirit not fighting against each other but standing firm against Satan and the attacks of this world number two Christian citizens strive to work together to share the gospel together Christian faith is not an individual sport it is a team sport. God has gifted us to work together and to make progress for the gospel together. Number three, Christian citizens are not frightened when people oppose them. They expect there to be opposition to the gospel. Because whenever we speak it, it a supernatural thing is taking place. Some are drawn to that gospel, others are opposed to it. Number four, opposition is a sign. It's a sign of the genuineness of our Christian life, and it's a sign of the destruction of those who are opposed to it. And lastly, Christian citizens, they see suffering for the gospel not as a liability, but they see it as a privilege. A privilege to be able to suffer for sharing the gospel. That's what the apostles saw as a privilege, and that's what we should see as a privilege as well. My friends, This week, do not just believe the Christian faith, but I challenge you to live as worthy citizens the Christian life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the vivid Greek words that Paul used in this passage to drive home to the Philippians and to drive home to us what it means to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. I ask that you would give us great unity together across all of our campuses as a church, that we would stand firm against Satan and not fight between one another. I ask that you would give us great teamwork together as we strive to work together, to do together what none of us could do alone, to share the gospel, not just in our city, but in our entire region. And when we face opposition for making progress for the gospel, may we not be startled. May we expect it and see it as a privilege. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.